but uh, we turn for one last time to the gospel according to John, to John chapter 21. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, we're coming to John 21, verse 18. Uh, Peter will die. John will die. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All stories in this life must have their end. And here we come to the end of the Gospel of John. And we pick up reading in verse 18. Most assuredly, I say to you, the Lord says to Peter, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Then Peter turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, is this the one that betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then the saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. We know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which... If they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Well, let's pray once more. Our Father in heaven, it is with sadness that we come to the end of such a magnificent portrait of Jesus and so many lessons and encouraging times of instruction and uh, uh, miraculous deliverances. We long for the face of Jesus Christ to continue to shine forth from these pages to us that we, beholding him as in a glass, might be transformed into that same image from glory and, as, and glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. We pray that you would seal such precious words to our hearts and that the Lord himself who is with us would be our constant companion We know that our times are in his hands, and yet we confess that we also feel the the pressures and the fears, the anxieties of this current age. We pray that you would seal our hearts for your courts above. By Christ we pray. Amen. Well, as you know, if you've been here for any time, Charles Spurgeon makes it into my sermons practically every week, it seems. He was a brilliant preacher that I've learned much from, but he was also a man, you might know, who suffered tremendous physical pain and depression through most of his adult life. Physically, Charles Spurgeon suffered from gout, from rheumatism, and from something called Bright's disease, the inflammation of the kidneys. His first attack of gout came at the young age of 35 years old to Spurgeon. It was only 1869 when he had his first affliction. 
but it became progressively worse so that, uh, as one biographer writes, approximately one-third of the last 22 years of his ministry was spent out of the tabernacle pulpit, either suffering or convalescing or taking precautions against the return of the illness. Did you realize that? That For uh, this great man's life, for so many years of his ministry, he was only in the pulpit two weeks out of three. In in a letter to a friend, he once wrote this. uh, Lukian says, I thought a cobra had bitten me and filled my veins with poison, but it was worse. It was gout. His illness finally took his life at the young age of 57 years old. It's also not quite so easy for many of us to imagine that eloquent, uh, brilliant, spiritual giant of a man weeping for hours on end, not knowing why he was weeping. But in 1858, at the age of only 24 years old, depression cast its shadow across his life. Spurgeon writes, quote, My spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, yet I knew not what I wept for. His depression came and went for the rest of his life with increasing severity. And by the way, his wife was often too ill to leave home to even hear him preach. He also endured constant controversy through most of his ministerial life. Spurgeon once said, quote, I have suffered many times from extreme sickness and frightful mental depression, seeking almost to despair. Almost every year I've been laid aside for a season, for flesh and blood cannot bear the strain, at least such flesh and blood as mine, end quote. And I could go on telling you of his afflictions, but why do I mention these things? I mention them because Charles Spurgeon was a man that had learned by painful experience how to rest in God's good will, in God's sovereign, overruling will for his servants in this world. Charles Spurgeon said in one magnificent sermon, which I commend to you, called, My Times Are in Thy Hands. He said, In God's hand, we rest as securely as a babe rests on his mother's breast. Where could our interest be so well secured as in his eternal hand? What a blessing it is to see by the eye of faith that all things that concern you are grasped in the hand of God. What peace as to every matter which could cause anxiety to flow into the soul when we see all of our hopes built upon so stable a foundation and preserved by such supreme power. That was a man who practiced what he preached. He knew of which he spoke. Someone paraphrased him to say that God's sovereignty was the pillow on which the godly may rest their heads. There were many tears on that pillow, I assure you. Much sweat and anxious hours and labor spent 
Nevertheless, God's sovereignty was the pillow on which he laid his head. And this is the final thing that the Lord wishes to have for all of his disciples as we conclude the Gospel of John. This is what the Lord has for his servant Peter and John and for all of you. In the passage before us, Jesus tells Peter about his death by which he will glorify God. It's to be a martyr's death. Someone will stretch out his hands, a reference to the crucifixion that he will have to endure, carrying him to a place that he does not wish to go. A martyr's death for Peter would come. And the Lord knows what, happened, what will happen to Peter, of course, as he knows what will happen to us. Our days are not hidden from his sight. But then comes even a stronger statement. As Peter says, well, Lord, what about that man? Looking over to John, what about him? Jesus replies, look, if I, if I will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. That's uh, an interesting way to put it. Uh, it it's, it's really not your business. Uh, you, you shouldn't be comparing yourselves to others, Peter. You shouldn't be worried, what about them? How are you going to deal with so-and-so? You need to follow me. But I, I just call your attention to the way that the Lord put it. If I will that he remain. That is to say, if, if I decided that he should be alive somewhere today in, in, in a cave in Cappadocia somewhere, right? Until I remain, what's that to you? If I will to treat my servant John this way and you that way, what is that to you? But this is what David said in Psalm 31, which is the place that I've taken the title for my sermon. Our times are in his hands. Our times are in his hands. The Lord ordains the days of his servants as seems good to him, as he pleases. Life and death and everything else in between are all in the good pleasure of our God. Our times are in his hand. And there was, as we read here, some misunderstanding about this saying in the ancient church. John wishes to clear it up so that after he's gone, the, the church won't be thrown into confusion. I thought the Lord was going to come back before he died. Well, Jesus didn't say that he would preserve John's life until he returned, only that if he did wish to do so, that was no concern of Peter's. All of this, of course, did take place as the Lord said. John lived a very long life as it happened, although part of it was in a miserable exile on the Isle of Patmos, and Peter was crucified in Rome during the persecution of Nero, uh, which broke out after the fire of Rome in A.D. 64. So, as expected, of course, all of this came to pass, but what are we to take from this? What are we to learn as we conclude our study of the Gospel of John? Well, my first point is just the title of the sermon as well. I couldn't think of a better way to say, our times are in his hands. Our times are in his hands. That to follow Jesus, you and I must learn to trust him as our sovereign Lord, the one who does appoint our days and direct the events of our lives in line with his loving and good purpose. Our times are in his hands. 
as, as Paul began to explain the gospel to the Athenians, he made this very point to them. He said that God has determined our pre-appointed times and the boundaries of our dwellings. And that nothing in such times can happen outside of his power and purpose. You remember we read just a chapter or two before that Peter th- Pilate threatened Jesus. Do you not know I have the power to crucify you? And the power to release you. And Jesus answered, you could have no power against me at all. Against, unless it had been given you from above. A very strong statement that everything is in the hand of our God where we may leave it without anxiety. For, again, Spurgeon says, in that hand we may rest as securely as rests a babe upon his mother's breast. And what a blessing to see by the eye of faith all things that concern you grasped by the hand of God. Can you see that? Do you believe that? Not just our times, not just your times. Can you say, my times are in his hand? There is a great sweetness to be able to rest there. As Spurgeon goes on, to have our times in God's hand must mean not only that they are at God's disposal, but that they are arranged by the highest wisdom. For God's hand never errs, and if our times are in his hand, those times are ordered rightly. And we need not puzzle our brains to understand providence. A much easier and wiser course is open to us, namely to believe the hand of God works all things together for our good. Sit thou still, O child, at thy great father's feet, and let him do as seems good to him. When thou canst not comprehend him, know that a babe can't understand the wisdom of its sire. The father comprehends all things, though thou dost not. Let his wisdom be enough for thee. Well, brothers and sisters, our, our, our times change. But his love changes not. We may be up and down. We may be for richer or for poorer. We may be in sickness and in health. We may be in storm. We may be in calm. But the length of our days, as well as the darkness of our nights, are all appointed by the one who says that these things must serve our good if we are the called according to his purpose. And there's a quote by B.B. Warfield that comes back to me time and again, a beautiful quote that goes like this, amid whatever encircling gloom, we can't be robbed of God's providence. The world may be black to us. There may be no hope in man. Anguish and trouble may be our daily portion, but there is this light that shines through all the darkness. We cannot be robbed of God's providence. Do you believe that? This is the confidence that we must have. This is the confidence with which the Lord will leave his servants. 
there is going to come a dark night for you, Peter. But you are to follow me. This is the confidence that Jesus' disciples were always to have, all of them. As he sent them out to preach, he gave them the instructions. Aren't two sparrows sold for a copper coin? But I tell you, not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Do not fear. This is my father's world. Nothing will happen apart from his will. Not a sparrow will fall to the ground. Not a hair fall from your head. The Lord has appointed how Peter would serve him, how he would glorify him in death. He did the same for John in his own way. He does the same for all who would follow him. And so this is one of the most important lessons that we must learn in the Christian life that it is our reasonable worship or our acceptable sacrifice of worship to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Can you say with gladness and confidence, my times are in your hand, that the wings of the cherubim cover me, that the Lord who loved me and gave himself for me that my times are in the hands that were nailed to the cross for my salvation. This is the only place where our souls may safely rest. And so point one, our times are in his hands. Now here's the second thing, that we must follow the Lord even if we don't understand. That we must follow the Lord even if we don't understand. Peter is some curiosity about what happens to others Jesus says, whatever may happen, it's not your concern. Your concern must be to follow me. But he does want him to have some understanding of what it will mean. And so he tells him of his death. Karl Marx once defined a communist this way. He said a communist was a dead man on furlough. A dead man on furlough. That is when Karl Marx wrote Das Kapital, there were just a couple hundred communists in the whole world. In 1903, he convened the Third Communist International in London, where they had a discussion about who should join the movement. Some said, we need everybody we could get because we are small, we have no money, and we are not welcome anywhere. Let's accept anyone. Karl Marx stood up. Are you out of your mind, he said. We will never conquer the world with the partial loyalty of anybody. We are interested in total dedication or nothing. A communist is not one who gives a little part of his substance to the cause. A communist is not even one who is willing to die for communism. A communist is one who has already died and who lives the balance of his life on borrowed time. A communist is a dead man on furlough. If you believe that, come with us, and if you don't, get out. Well, most of the, truth, most of the people got out. There were 17 or 18 followers left. But Marx addressed that little group and said, Gentlemen, you are people of destiny. You can conquer the world. History has laid its hand of destiny upon your shoulders. We will move in ever-widening circles. We will capture nation after nation, and finally the world. 
and a transformed future will be ours. You see, he said, the people in our party have already given up their lives in principle. They're living like they got nothing to lose. They work like there's no tomorrow, for there may be no tomorrow. They will give themselves as though they're already living on borrowed time. Dead men on furlough. Well, he went on to kill hundreds of millions, but uh, Jesus is saying a certain similar thing to Peter. Um, Peter, you are to live like you're dying, right? As the country song says, you are my servant. To devote yourself to me without fear, without reserve. Your time is short, your work is great, and it's a time for utter consecration, a time of forgetting self-pleasure, in short, to be a dead man on furlough. And by the way, you will die a martyr's death, so you can settle that right now. But this is precisely how Jesus is always describing the Christian life, is it not? That we are to die daily. That taking up one's cross and following the Lord, even hating father and mother, wife and children, surrendering homes and fields, not even going back to bury our own dead, fighting a great fight. On and on in the New Testament, we have the most dramatic pictures, these images of a Christian life that is entirely given over to the service of the Lord, single-minded, without fear, without qualified devotion. Of course, you know that he who loses his life finds it. That in keeping such commandments, there is great reward that seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness means that all these other things will be added to us. But we must not forget the extraordinary self-sacrifice and single-minded devotion to which the Lord calls Peter and to all of his disciples who answer the call, follow me. This is everywhere in the Bible, the characteristic of the true Christian. My second point, we must follow the Lord even when we don't understand at all. He says to you, he says to me, you follow me. That is your calling. But this means, uh, thirdly, that for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. Third and finally, for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. Someone may hear all that I'm saying about how the Lord directs the, the course of our lives and numbers our days and even appoints our end, even the end of martyrdom, and raise an objection. Am I saying that God is the author of evil? No, God forbid, certainly not. Although God, for, for this brief season, permits evil to have its day and will constrain it to serve his own good ends for the love of his people. God is not the source of evil, nor, as James writes, does God even tempt any to do evil. The evil proceeds entirely from the creature. But, but that doesn't solve the problem, you say. Look, if the Lord could preserve John or Peter until he returned, why didn't he? And why would Peter rather have to go to the executioner? Well, here it is in verse 19. This the Lord spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. This was his calling. During the brutal reign of Nicolae Ceausescu in Romania, they threatened and intimidated 
the Christians just like they did throughout the book of Acts. Pastor Joseph Tsone, in one of his published sermons, tell how the authorities threatened to kill him. Joseph Tsone replied to them, Sir, your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. They decided not to kill him. He was saying to his persecutors, we are not afraid to die. And if it is by death that you choose to seal my testimony and glorify my God, that is on you. But your supreme weapon is killing and my supreme weapon is dying. Let's get that straight. We are not afraid to die if it means showing in the ultimate way that there is a hope far beyond anything in this life. Something that is far more important than all the world can offer us. Something that we will not fear, even if the world threaten us with its worst. For us to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And that is a peace that the world can neither give nor take away. Brothers and sisters, what about us? We may not live so bravely. We may not witness so publicly. We will hopefully not suffer such a terrible death. But the principle is the same. The way that we respond in faith to life, to suffering, to trial, to death, it does bear witness to the glory of our God. For we know that our lives are in the Lord's hands, and we are not afraid with any terror. And the question for us is not if we will live or if we will die, but what kind of life and even what kind of death we will have. Romans 14, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. That is our confidence. Calvin had a prayer each morning that he prayed with his students for those who were suffering greatly for their faith. A prayer which always ended, that you, O God, might be glorified in their living or in their dying. That was how the Reformation made millions of converts in Europe. And in the ancient world, Christianity didn't overcome the evil of the Roman world by talking merely. They overcame the world by dying. It was their testimony, even in the face of suffering, that they were unafraid, unashamed, and glad to go to the Lord if that was what he had for them in the face of his execution, executioners. I've told you before about the martyrdom of Polycarp, fearless before the threat of death, praying for the forgiveness of his murderers, blessing those who cursed him, unmoved by all of his sufferings. You read Fox's Book of Martyrs and you realize just how common this was, a scene that happened again and again and again until it captured the world a testimony sealed by love and courage and blood. For they preached the truth and opposed an evil with greater effect than they could have without suffering. And their deaths brought life to millions. The blood of the martyrs, as Tertullian said, became the seed of the church. And so in the same way, when you bear your sufferings, whatever they are, with Christian grace, 
with aplomb. When you bear persecutions with love and charity, when you honor God in the midst of your trials, knowing that all things come from his fatherly hand, when you endure suffering with grace and peace, love and confidence and joy. It's a picture worth a thousand words to others. You are glorifying God, saying to all to live as Christ and to die as gain. And even when you bear the more ordinary trials in this life in a Christ-like way, sickness, unkindness, other difficulty, it is a powerful testimony. But whatever the Lord has for us, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Charles Spurgeon, uh, as I said in that sermon, um, he gives seven practical benefits of knowing our times are in his hand. I, I won't be able to give all those to you, but I thought that they were wonderful enough that I'd like to list them out for you to show you just how practical this is. That to know that our times are in his hands will create for you a sense of the nearness of God. That God is at hand to protect you, to direct you. That we lift our eyes to the hills and from whence shall come our aid. Our safety cometh from the Lord who heaven and earth hath made. Gives us a sense of the nearness of God. It also answers many temptations. When we're afraid of what will happen, we are tempted to throw away our integrity. But he knows. It it delivers us thirdly from the fear of men. We're not in the hands of our enemies. We're in the hands of God who loves us. Why should we fear? Fourth, it's a cure for worry. Why are we always crying and prying? Have you ever made a nickel by worry? Is it not much better to pray and to have the confidence, the peace of God, the, the, the surpassing peace that our hands, that God's hands are directing our lives and days? Fifth, it gives us a confidence in the future. Sixth, it, it, it's a reason for consecrated service. Spurgeon tells a, a story about Queen Elizabeth. She told one of her servants that he had to go over to Holland in order to take care of some business for her. And, and the man said he was very willing to serve his queen, of course, but if he left, it would be the end of his business. It would be the ruin of his of his business. And, and she said to him, look, you take care of my business. I'll take care of yours. He said, yes, ma'am. He went. Jesus says, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, don't worry. All these things shall be added to you. This is a reason for consecrated service. You be about his work. He'll see that your business is taken care of. And seven, a hope of eternal blessedness. The one who takes care of our times will take care of our eternity. We are in his hands now and forever. Let us rest. Our times are in his hands. Well, in conclusion, it's been such a magnificent book. We are sorry to leave it. Peter must die. John must die. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. John finishes his book saying, I, I, wish I, could have tell, I wish I could tell you everything that I saw and, and heard and witnessed of Jesus. The world itself could not contain the books. Uh, 
hyperbole to, to say it was just so much more that I could have ever expressed in words. Alexander Moody Stewart, one of the more spiritual and powerful preachers of the free church in the middle of the 19th century, he uh, explained once what an elder told him about, about his preaching. A humbling thing, but I'm, I'm thankful for good elders that give me some feedback from time to time that, need, that I need to hear. Uh, Stewart was told by one of his elders, you ministers should have more of the infinite in your sermons. And he showed me two family portraits by eminent painters. He said, that is by an artist. And that is by a genius. In the one, you have the whole before you and nothing beyond. But in the other, those lines run off into infinity. And you, Stuart, will never reach the people by telling us as if you knew it all, giving us lessons as if we were children. If you wish to move us, you must make us feel that you see more than you are able to express and that you think more than there is an infinite height and depth beyond what you see. But you go to the brim of the great ocean, dip a tumbler into it, and set it down before us, and then you tell us this is the ocean. Well, the point is, John finishes his book with his last sentence. There is an ocean, a great ocean in the Lord Jesus. Unless we mistake him, there is so much more that he could ever, ever possibly tell. That we are talking here about a salvation that begins and ends with the love and work and the gift of God himself to the world. What can we say? It's impossible to cover any kind of a glorious subject like this. John will give his life to spreading the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And when he was an older man, much... um, Older, it seems, if tradition is right, he wrote down this book, this good news, that all the world might forever be able to read something of the greatest and most important story ever told. There are those, I think, that read this story without much interest and think that perhaps there's not much here. Perhaps there's nothing new that we could learn. That reminds me of the man that John Newton told, tells us about, well, he, he was once reading Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He came across Paul's phrase in the third chapter uh, of the unsearchable riches of Christ. The man thought, that's strange. Um, he was arrested by the phrase because he was honest enough to admit that he, that he never really found anything unsearchable in the Bible, in the Christian message. Anything mysterious and wonderful and beyond words, extremely, infinitely glorious. It occurred to him that If such an intelligent man as Paul thought that Jesus Christ and the message about him was actually unsearchable riches, that he must not have understood what the message was. It all seemed really so ordinary to him. So, honest man that he was, he set himself to reading and pondering the message of the Bible until, by the grace of God, he was at last gripped by the stupendous character of the message and came to see what was actually being said about his own sin and guilt and the impending judgment of God upon this world and how Christ came to deliver him and the gift of eternal life, the free gift of God's grace and the joy that was his, but for the asking, and most importantly, what it taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. God become man, man to deliver.
as the old hymn says, and seeing now all of this and much more as unsearchable riches, he gave his heart and life to Christ. We come to the end of a great and glorious study. I hope that all of you here in my hearing have had such experience to know something of the greatness and the wonder that Paul, that John finishes his book with. If not, if you have not learned these unsearchable riches, go back to the beginning. Search it out until you have found that these things are unsearchably wonderful. Dorothy Sayers memorably put it this way, if, if this is dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? You may call this exhilarating or devastating. You can call it revelation or you can call it rubbish. But if you call it dull, then words have no meaning at all. John has set out before us now in these 21 chapters the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his sacrifice for our sin, the eternal life of our salvation, his sending the Holy Spirit, and it might seem to some common, even well-known, nothing new or nothing interesting, nothing relevant for our lives today. Probably that's why there are so many sermons that are being preached still on marriage and money than about the glories of Jesus Christ but I tell you that nothing is more important for your lives, for your marriage or your money, for your children and your business, for your peace and happiness, for your fruitfulness in life and that life which is to come than to have your hearts dominated by this infinite, eternal, unchangeable truth that John has written of Jesus. John has given us a great gift, a magnificent portrait of Jesus Christ. It is left to us now, brothers and sisters, to make the best use of such a gift, to take it to heart, to live by this truth that has been so brilliantly and compellingly and persuasively presented by giving the honor and the affection and the importance to Jesus Christ that he deserves every day that he so richly, richly deserves. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for such a word. We bless you for this gospel of John. We pray that you would truly make us to be followers of Jesus Christ, as it is written here, to be his true disciples, richer and more consecrated disciples, uh, more courageous and joyful disciples than we have ever been. You know that we love you. We pray that you would forgive us in the ways in which we have fallen short, even as Peter himself had stumbled but his failure was not final. We thank you that there is abundant forgiveness, a free forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would now come together with such things before us, not concerned about how you are treating this servant or that servant or how you're dealing with our lives or their lives, but coming to you, as it were, all alone this day and say, lay lay. Lay whatever you desire upon us. Lead on, O King Eternal. May your blessed will have its way in our lives. Our, our times are in your hand, O Lord. Here's our lives. Take and seal every day for your courts above, we pray 